Hey everybody, I'm Zoe. And I'm Chandi. And this is Bound by the Cloak. There's been an issue with policing for a long time. And we as the public weren't always aware of how that world works. With cameras so easily accessible to us, there's more visibility to the injustices committed by law enforcement. The community should be able to trust law enforcement, and law enforcement should be able to trust the community as well. We're at a time where discussions about the future of law enforcement are more critical than ever. We sat down with former police chief, speaker, and author of the book, Arrested Development, David Cooper. From leading police departments to advocating for innovative approaches, His journey includes challenges, successes, and a relentless commitment to fostering positive change. With a career that spans decades in law enforcement, he's witnessed the evolution of policing, grappled with its challenges, and emerged as a leading voice for reform. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining us today. You um you have a really unique perspective on policing and have um have had a very unique career as well. You were a patrolman in Minneapolis. Then after only about seven years or so, you became chief of police in Burnsville and then went on to be chief of police in Madison for over 20 years. Is that right? Maybe closer to nine. Yeah, I think I started in 1960 and then I got my first Chief job, 1969 at Burnsville, Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. Different ideas about policing. Uh, not necessarily the most popular, but. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and you also went to school when you were um, a, a patrolman, I believe, right? Worked night shift and uh, went to school at the university there at daytime. Yeah, that was quite the crazy years. And and I mean, and now you're a pastor, which is a completely different perspective, kind of along all the points in your career. People say, oh, that's a big shift. It's, well, not if you saw your job as a police officer is caring for people, then what's the big shift? There isn't a big That's shift. True. It's really how, you know, how you see the job. The job has been so, so distorted in so many ways. Yeah. And so why the change in, in career? Why go from policing yeah. to being a pastor? Certainly one is entitled to arrest. <laughs> well, actually for people who, have a faith perspective that understand that it wasn't a call. There was something that I I needed to leave what I was doing and go and pursue this. And uh, always when I say that to people, and if they don't have a faith perspective, they get very uncomfortable. Oh, well, what do you mean? Why did you choose that? I said, well, you know, I really didn't choose that. But uh, you want to hear the whole story? <laughs> it you sounds know. like it shows you. <laughs> so, did you always know you wanted to be a police officer? No, absolutely not. I think my, my intention was when I got out of the Marines, because um, I had a commanding officer that said there was a, a program where where you could, you could get to be an officer without having a college degree. And he said, you know, it's, don't, don't, don't do that. You'll get, you'll get reverted back when there's some personnel problems and you're not going to like going back to a sergeant after you've been a major. <laughs> so he said, go out and get your degree and, and see. And that's you know, okay, so I, I need to get out. I need to get to the university now, you know, so. What do you think about the current state of policing in America? Yeah, I think it's really, it's really a mess. Uh, what I, what I thought would happen after the George Floyd incident in Minneapolis and his death, that, that um, police would uh, start to assess 
you know, what their trust levels were in communities and, um, you know, seek to repair that. My, my whole uh, message after George Floyd was, uh, and when people talk about eliminating police, uh, you know, defunding police, well, why don't we reimagine police? Why don't we start from scratch and let's have community meetings uh, involving the police and uh, and just talking to people and kind of re- re- redoing this from years of, I think, in many cases, some negative histories. And although nobody wants to, you know, talk about uh, critical race theory and all those things, the fact of the matter is that if you look at policing historically, it has been, you know, I don't know why people don't like this, but it's been predominantly to try to keep black people down. And they don't like that message. And um, and I always say that one, one benefit of being white is that I can give that message. And I think that black leaders give that message and they get shut down real quickly and everything. But certainly, you know, my experience is the way in which we are organized, or the way in which our laws are, how our prison system is. It's an extension of that. And a lot of police don't know that, including police of color don't really understand what they're doing either. That's sad. So I thought there would be maybe a, you know, sort of a recalibration, a rethinking of the job and, uh, and you know, how, how should police operate in a, in a democratic and free society? You know, of course, that didn't happen. And I think the last thing I said is that, well, there'll be some, you know, especially since since the Trump era, um, that there'll be some police departments in some middle to small cities with a good tax base will try to develop and have police that are doing a good job. We are so frightened of, you know, the left and right. And I, I just, in, in, in this environment, Proposed uh, the kind of within a, a city, um, you know, there'd be just tremendous pushback from a significant number of of white people who see the police as protecting them from the other, and that's just the way it's going to be. And uh, you know, I know in my lifetime, and maybe not in the next generation, that's not going to happen, and and maybe it never will. I I don't I don't know. I the, the, you know there are there are models out there in Europe of uh, EU nations that are a little bit more oriented towards, uh, you know, training their police for two to three years. Uh, the EU uh, people must sign a statement that, that the police in these only when absolutely necessary. So some countries even, even teach um, uh, less than deadly shooting, um, that, that you can disable somebody like with a shotgun into the legs and things that, yes, they will be injured, but they won't be, they won't be killed. And, and yet, I, I've had you know big pushback from young officers on that. I said, "Well, you forget, and you don't know, but you know my era of police were trained in less than deadly shootings with the shotgun to skip shotgun rounds into somebody's knees and to disable them without killing them. So this isn't shouldn't be brand new, you know, shouldn't be brand new. And the other thing that we, the police, uh, refuse to step away, you know, the um, the Graham versus uh, the Connor Supreme Court decision about you know abs about um, of um, basically well if I get I get scared I get to use uh, deadly force sort of the um, a doctrine that that the case had nothing to do with deadly force at, at all but um, that's been the cloak that uh, that I think used to justify the shooting so so what happens in city after city even in my own city here in Madison. There have been situations which police have used deadly force. The district attorney absolves saying under 
Supreme Court decision, Graham versus Connor, that this is a legitimate shoot. The family goes to file a civil suit, and a jury of the peers returns you know, millions of dollars in settlement to that family. And then they say, well, I said, you got to look at that. I mean, this, this is how your citizens are, are looking at what you did. They, but, but then that doesn't hurt the taxpayer, because in most states, there's an insurance pool. So even though a three, four, five million dollar settlement, which without that insurance would be citizens would say, wait a second, you know, you're not spending our money very well here. But it's um, it's sort of a negligible impact by having this insurance pool. So the so people, the taxpayer doesn't really feel that. Some of our largest cities, it's you know, you know, tens of millions, maybe even up to hundred million, maybe of course of, of these things. We talked about what you think about the current state of policing. When you first joined the police force right out of the academy, what was your impression of law enforcement back then, decades ago? Minneapolis, that was, right out of the academy. Um, they, they had a referendum and they hired uh, 100 new police. And um, it, it, was, it was a young group. And uh, a, a lot of us were... We're, we're looking forward to getting the GI Bill and um, and using this to to, to get us back into uh, back into college again, and so there was a different uh, it was a different attitude that in terms of of race. So so we we actually formed when I went on the Minneapolis department. There's one black officer who was a de- detective and very very highly competent, but that that was it. And of course, no women were in uniform, uh, which was exactly the situation. <laughs> I inherited when I went to Madison in uh, 1972. One, or there were two black officers. Well, actually, one left before I came. There was actually one black officer and no women in uniform. So, so we had gotten together, and this was the era, I think, of the of the 60s and civil rights. So, all of us who were going to college, we 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 formed a fraternity, a group, uh, and it was like you know outside the union. The union never never liked us, and we we had a lot of trouble with with the police union. You know, you you shouldn't be out there speaking about these matters. So we were speaking about matters of race and education and those things, and and it became sort of a a bonding group. And uh, a, a lot of people in that cohort went on to you know head up police departments around around the uh, Minneapolis St. Paul suburban area. And um, so so there was an impact by that, and it was you know quite different. That was an idea that we would speak out on the issues and you know, caused a lot of a lot of trouble. Um, I wrote a couple of editorials to the Minneapolis Tribune and you know ended up in the chief's office and saying, you know, you're not authorized to to write this stuff and you better stop it or you're not gonna be working here anymore. And and luckily some of my professors at the university spoke up and wrote a, a letter, a number of them signed on, uh, and wrote a letter to the mayor to have the chief <laughs> back off on me and I didn't get fired, but um but they they really didn't like the idea of younger officers uh, speaking up in the organization, that's for sure. But that was a long, a long time ago. And I just, you know, I don't see a lot of that like, anymore. I mean, you know, I've kind of looking for is there some young officers who who are stepping up? I think there's been over the years uh, some black officers that have formed formed groups in larger departments. There was a fellow I knew at, uh, who was in the Chicago Police Department, got in a lot of trouble, who, who formed a, a group of black officers and talking about justice and race and issues. But, you know, I've not seen that over the years. 
where young men and women have really, you know, tried to step up and and challenge the system. I mean, and was there a big difference in what you learned while going to school versus what was actually being practiced by the department? Well, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I was uh, I was a sociology major in deviant behavior, so <laughs> so so the deviant behavior fitted quite well. You know, just talking about socialization and you know how you know how the system worked and how the organization worked. Minneapolis uh, then uh, was was highly political, and some colleagues of mine in later years uh, got a, a term of office for the chief of police. In, in my era, the chief served at the pleasure of the mayor, who had a two-year term, and it was kind of in- interesting. Uh, if we look back at it, it was um, it was a Catholic Protestant thing in in Minneapolis, which I thought was quite interesting. So if you wanted if you wanted to get ahead of the department and get a, a better promotion and, and maybe rise up the ranks, you either belonged to the uh, to the KC, the Knights of Columbus, or the Masons. <laughs> that was the way because in the city's structure, um, and I talked about this in an oral history with a professor from Hamlin University a couple of years ago, that it was expected that for a couple of years that if there was a uh, chief who was from the Knights of Columbus, he would be replaced by a chief who was a Mason after after that. So that got kind of really chilling me. I said that was not the system that I wanted to work in. So I started uh, looking around, and luckily a, a, a young city manager just outside of Minneapolis in Burnsville hired me in 1969. Especially when you were police chief, what needed to change? with the department? What did you see that needed to be adjusted in terms of policing? The first thing was um, was the department was in no way reflective of the, in the diversity of the community. So that was a glaring thing. And that the women officers that they had hired had to have a college degree, which was interesting. And they were to work only with youth. They were in the Youth, uh, youth Service Bureau. And yeah. That was it? They were only, the male police officers did not have that same requirement? No, just the high school requirement. I'll, I'll lay out to you the perfect storm. Okay, so there were these uh, women who, who had college degrees who worked worked with youth and were, were detectives, had, had arrest powers, but they weren't, uh, they weren't, they, they couldn't carry a weapon. And get this, they could not uh, compete for promotion above their, their current rank. <laughs> Can you believe that? That sounds insane. Yeah. So, so that was, um, you know, really the department wasn't a bad police department. It was, it was, um, I, I was lucky to inherit some, some good people who, who wanted to do what I was talking about. Um, they didn't have any, you know, major corruption problems. Um, it was just a good old 1950s, 60s police department in a college city. And then, um, you know, my main effort and my main, of course, also my main resistance was integrating the department, um, in, uh, opening up for women being hired as police officers and working in uniform and being able to carry a weapon just like the men, equality in these ranks, uh, and increasing the training from from weeks to, to just about a year, and then having a, a field training officer experience where they're working with the senior officer for trained senior officer for a period after that. Just just those changes were enough to to turn the organization like upside down about who's in favor of Cooper and who isn't. And um, 
know, the first few years were probably about the first five or six years were just a grinder. And people say, well, well why didn't you quit? They say, well, it's not that I didn't feel like quitting. I certainly felt like quitting, but um, but I was not going to let them, let them grind me down. So I have a certain level of uh, perseverance in my uh, in my soul here that um, that I said, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get this done as long as it takes me to be here. And uh, and part of that was they had to understand that that I wasn't going anyplace. That I wasn't you know the wunderkind who came in and with his uh, master's degree and he'll be off someplace. No, no, no. You've you caused so much trouble to me all these years that I'm going to stick here and I'm going to get this stuff done. And you know, after about let's see, from so probably it was about eight or nine years that we were able to start moving more collaboration, more retirements. I said, I said, personnel wise, uh, thanks, thank you so much for World War II because 1945, add 30 years when they came, when these guys came out of the military, they did their 30 years in the city, and they were in 1975 ready to retire, and then I could start bringing younger people up the ranks and starting to change the organization. But had that not been the case, had I, had I come there 10 years earlier, you know, I, I, I just don't know if, if I could have done that. You know, it was a, a mark in time uh, um, that, that really was what was on my side, that you know, the, my, my command staff were my father's age when I came there, all, all of them, and all of them white and all of them very conservative and all of them in their 50s. When did that happen? When did you first start implementing, you know, what you thought your ideas of police reform were? Well, quite quite early. I set some goals and, you know, I came on the end of 72. And by 1973, I, I came under a very conservative mayor who, who never met with me after I was appointed, angry because they went against his will and um, and hired me on a three to two vote. So in, in, uh, then in, the, in, in April of 73, Paul Soglin, uh, a kind of liberal Democrat, uh, was hired uh, uh, mayor. He was young in, the 20, in his 20s. He was a, a student at the University of Wisconsin. That, that gave me the protection. And I also had, had protection in state law in Wisconsin. Uh, chapter 6213 uh, says that in larger cities, the chief of police can only be, be dismissed for cause. So they had to find a cause. And of course, they floated quite a few of them over the years, which was pretty uh, pretty nasty business. Thankfully, we didn't have social media then. We had uh, two newspapers, one one of which uh, I, I could do I, I could do no wrong. Uh, that was the uh, evening newspaper. The morning newspaper was I could do nothing right. <laughs> so that went back and forth. Policing in America differs greatly from some other countries. Finland in particular has, I think there's like a couple of years of training yeah, for, yeah. for new officers. But what are the steps that need to be taken to create change and push for police reform? Yeah, yeah. Well, one day people will maybe settle down and say, you know, we're a great country with great wealth, with, with, a, um, with a constitution that says that all people have equal rights. And uh, you know, let's sit down and figure out uh, how how we how we should select and train and lead our police in this country, and um, you know that would be a good effort. Back in '67, where President Johnson's uh, Crime Commission came together, their task force on the police had a lot of uh, very um, radical and uh, 
very um, creative ideas about policing, youth service bureaus to 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 uh, try to get police uh, get get the young people out of the criminal justice system because the the system damaged them so much. But but they never thought about the idea, which is interesting. In 1967, they never conceived the idea that women would be working as police officers, even in Europe, where that was the case and, and quite popular. When I when I did a study of European police in uh, 1969, you know, that's that's where I sort of, oh, my gosh, you know, these women are working in Paris and I'm riding with them. And, you know, we never thought about that. So that was that was important. And and then when President Obama tried to do something like that again, to have, you know, a task force on policing, of course, we know what happened to that. Uh, they never said this was, you know, Johnson's task force on policing back in the 60s. But, but as soon as as President Obama had assembled, I think, I, I would have liked to have been on there, but I was happy with the men and women that were selected to be on that commission. Right away, it was Obama's commission. It was all about Obama and not about what they're doing. And then the, the actual perversion of that when, you know, that guy we know was the president for a while put together his commission, which was just... Gross, 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 terrible, terrible. So even though we, we tried to get those principles, those improvement principles, and uh, here in Wisconsin, I was teaching at the university down at Platteville. We had uh, we had two two regional conferences on implementing uh, the work of, uh, of Obama's Commission on Policing, but it never it never it never went any place. It just uh, there were there good principles. I blogged about it. It's some really good stuff here. And it just didn't have traction because it didn't have the politics behind it. And we were just on, you know, trying to overturn that any way in which we could. It's too bad. It still it still remains as a very good document and something that police need to pay attention to. It makes sense, you know, with the years of experience you've had, you've written books, and you talk about community-oriented policing. So what yeah. is that exactly? You talk, you talk to the police about community about what kind of policing they want. <laughs> so it's um, it's very oriented oriented towards um, you know not policing by time of day but by geography. That um, a team of police officers, or preferable case, one police officer is assigned to a neighborhood, and which which uh, he or she has now. It's really great with with cell phones has communication. You can you can call call them directly. Uh, meeting at the community center, problems are discussed and solutions are are offered, and you know, and we see how it works. Um, it's um, it's highly uh, trust oriented uh, by having a police who are who are highly trained and have uh, emotional intelligence. <laughs> they don't have to be the smartest kids on the block, but they have to have EQ. Right? We're finding that that seems oh, they get along, plays well with others. Yes. Plays well with others. That's good. That's the kind of place we want. Plays well with others. Shandi and I have talked about this before, and I, I mentioned it to her previously, which is I like the idea of police officers that are familiar with a particular neighborhood and they know the people. They, they get to know, you know, how the neighborhood operates, right? Because when you have people from outside that town even, right, they may not really have a good understanding of how things operate. What do you, what is your take on that? Well, you know, we one 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 of the great battles I lost <laughs> here in Madison Police are should live in the city in which they 
police. They should they should have some skin in this game. They shouldn't be be seen as uh, people who are who are commuting sort of like outside forces to to enforce the law. It's um, it, it it would be difficult to retain that, but it but it could be done. It could be done through financial incentive. It could be done by subsidized housing. It could be done in a number of different ways. That that would greatly change, I think, the you know the demeanor of a neighborhood. Uh, that was the experience that that I had. And it's in 19, it was 67, Minneapolis had a, had a major racial uprising and the north side of the city was burned and it was pretty pretty nasty. And um, after I was working on the north side station and I and it was one of, I was thinking about this community policing and I said, well, could I could I walk the beach beat down in the black neighborhood? So well, we've never had a foot beat in a black neighborhood. Well, I, I'd like to try. I'd like to try that. And so I worked out of a community center there for for a number of months and um, and found it be really really great. Uh, met a lot of people, um, developed some trust, uh, got a lot of information about who's really the bad guys that are hurting people in the neighborhood. Um, because everybody wants to live in a safe neighborhood. You don't want to raise your kids with a bunch of gangbangers running around and shooting guns off and everything. Now, everybody wants to have a safe neighborhood to raise their children in. So, so that was a, a significant uh, experience for me to to do that. And I think that sort of settled a lot of those ideas about um, about sorry, you know, get, you got to be in the territory. And um, Minneapolis, I think we had a residency requirement then. We we had to live in the city, and that was good. But I think that that has probably been lost. So that's one of the things that could uh, that, that could make a difference. And uh, they're talking to today, you can't get anybody to please, be a police officer. Well, probably the way the system is, you can't. So maybe maybe you need to change the system, and maybe you'll find the people who come and work in this system because they would first of all have an orientation to you know I'm here to help people. I really want. I'm committed to to helping people, and um, and this would be the job for me. We put you know during the anti-war years, we put up. Uh, Posters, uh, billboards uh, around the city. It said, uh, "Join the other Peace Corps, the Madison Police Department. Join the other Peace Corps. You know, we're we're peacekeepers, and that's our job. And uh, you know, we we started to attract people who who never thought about about being a police officer. And I think that's that's part of that. So dropping hiring standards and education requirements and length of training right now because we've got to get more cops on the street is really dangerous. You know, cities will rue the day they drop the standards because that's that's not what needs to be done. You need to say, you know, I would go out, especially with the college crowds, then and said, you don't like the police? No, we don't like the police. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, you'll never change them from outside. The only way you change them is inside. So come on, come on, join us and help us change and be a better police department. And I think that's true. I mean, you take a look at all the major community organizations over the years that have tried to change the police outside. No, it just does not happen. Incredibly resistant subculture. They're they're not going to change. But inside, inside, you know, they need some uh, saboteurs, <laughs> some some ethical saboteurs in the organization to say, "Hey, you can be better." <laughs> We've had previous guests who 
you know, at first, you know, for a long time, their impression of the police was that they're they're always there to help them and trust the police um, without question. And then something happens in their life that kind of changes things yeah. for them. And a lot of times um, we've spoken to people, too, that mention police unions as kind of a, something that kind of holds back change. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And Minneapolis is a good example. Extremely strong police union. It was when I was butting heads with them back in the 60s. Yeah, it just, it, it was. That's uh, extremely uh, strong. Um, they'll get involved in, uh, in local elections, all that kind of thing. Um, that's, um, you know, that's really dangerous, I think. Well, just speaking about Minneapolis, it seems to have a certain reputation when it comes to policing. But, yeah. you know, when you hear about what, what is going on in Minneapolis or other cities, what's your reaction? Well, having you know worked there for, you know, seven years, back then the reputation was it's a kick-ass police department. And I think there's a lot of police departments around the country that sort of have that label, you know, especially, you know, ask, ask people in, in, in the minority community about you know, you can talk about people saying, you know, it's really great about police, but, you know, what you have to ask them is, have you ever been, do you have any contact with police? Because when you talk to people who have contact with police, they don't think so highly of their boys and girls in blue. And uh, that, was a, that was a great study that was done in the UK uh, years ago. And uh, I think I put it in my book because this is such a good one. They said, we have we have assessed the level of uh, of uh, uh, how, how citizens evaluate our police. And we find that overall, the police are highly respected, the highest uh, 90th percentile. We're very pleased by that. However, for those who have contact with police, they seem to rate them a lot lower. So the you know, the key is the contact. And, and even the understanding about, about race. I mean, I mean, if, you know, there shouldn't be a, a police officer that works in this country that hasn't read the 1619 report. Or gone through a seminar to talk about about what what our historical legacy is, and I thought I was pretty up historically on things, especially in the uh, the Reconstruction era and everything and how things got turned around. But what I what I what I didn't realize and really came to take away from for me that was the was the level of terrorism that existed in the South, you know, absolute terrorism terrorism, not that you're going to get a ticket or you might go to jail. No, 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 that you're going to get killed and maybe your family too. I mean, especially blocking voting with the things that were done. And uh, it's, uh, it's it's a horrendous story. And of course, uh, gosh, we don't want to tell our children about that because they might think bad of us. And I say, I think we should tell our children about that because I want them to do better. Strange world we live in sometimes. Yeah, it definitely is. You know, some people understand that there are issues with policing. And, and like we said, those are people that generally probably have contact with the police. But then you have the people who dismiss it and say that, it, you know, the issue isn't as bad as people make it make it seem. What do you think about that? Thanks to uh, two newspapers, we started collecting the number of people who were actually killed by police every year. And of course, it was shockingly more than what was reported to the FBI as to how many people were killed by police. So, and that figure popped up in 2015 at about a thousand people every year. Uh, I think about a third of them were people of color, pretty much young young males, as we've come to see. 2016, around a thousand. Even though we've had all the concern about about the shooting in Ferguson, 2017, 2018, still a thousand. 2019. 2020, 21 is still around. Okay, so 
I'm saying about about you know show some evidence that we're 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 using more restraint in use of deadly force, and uh, so that's not been the case. And then we just uh, you know I, I guess you could say, well, gosh, you know there hasn't been any great major egregious incident since George Floyd. Well, you know that that might be good, but but I think that. You know the numbers are going to be probably next year the same around a thousand. I don't know. It would seem to me that that would be one statistic. That, but you know, policing is all all local. You know, you're not going to control policing through national laws. It's 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 a local, a very very hands on city city and town and township and county. You know, some you know what sixteen seventeen thousand police departments and. You know, six hundred thousand police across the country, and you know, no, no standards nationally. You think that, you know, a great nation like ours, we're concerned about standards for <laughs> beauticians and barbers and things, at least on the statewide level, uh, licensing, a number of things like that. It just doesn't seem to happen. I think that's a very strong union pushback, and you know, just don't don't do this to us. Yeah, I wish wish I had a really um, you know great answer, but I think it's incredible that you have kind of seen it all. You know, being a patrol cop to a police chief, and so yeah. there's a big difference. So, what do you miss most about being a patrol cop when you were a police chief? And then also, what do you not miss? Well, I, I I've often said this, and I think most cops agree with me. You know, it is. Probably one of the jobs in America. I, I think you know the ability to to do good. You know, and please say, "Oh, it's it's terrible." You know, people hate me. No, 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 they don't hate you. You mean some drunk gave you some back talk last night? I said, "Be reasonable. Think about your think about your last shift you worked. I'll, I'll bet ninety percent of the people thanked you, were respectful to you, and really, really wanted to help you in your work." So you know, don't give me this stuff about oh they all hate me. No, no, that's not the case. Uh, you know, that's that's not the case. It's it's a really good job. What I what what I've said is that I think that good policing, good democratic policing, can be a kind of a social glue that holds the country together because the men and women that are in uniform and carrying out our laws are their direct representatives of our democracy. So if they are acting respectful, procedural, justice-oriented, listen to people, uh, make fair decisions, are are empathic when necessary, that um, that it has a great um, healing effect in the, in the society, that, uh, oh, this, this this stuff works around here. So so I, w- I certainly miss when I was, uh, when I went into to leadership position was that, that kind of direct hands-on and doing the job. It's really, you know, in fact, well, or... <laughs> I, I miss it so much that 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 every year uh, I, I went out in a marked car by myself and answered calls because I didn't want to lose what it was like, you know. And that was a, a really something I look forward to every every uh, summer was taking that month off. And of course, all my staff complained, oh, what are we going to do? I said, well, don't call me. You can do it. Like, I'm not here. You know, you're the deputy. You're supposed to be able to train for this. Don't bother me unless there's a real big problem. Um, because I'm working at nights and I need I need to sleep. Don't call me in the daytime. I need my sleep. So 
And, and the thing I like best about why I wanted to be a leader is that that's the only way I could change things. I wasn't going to change things in the rank and file, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to get involved in the union, so my only option was to move up into leadership, and especially top leadership. And that gave me a chance to set goals and to get teams working. And yeah, it's yeah, it was a tough. It was a it was a tough job. It was uh, it was hard on me. I just did my spiritual autobiography last Sunday at the at the church that I'm helping out at, and just talking about you know it was uh, one part of that was the crash when when I had to take some time off because it just the alligators were circling me and uh, and I, I needed some time away and I. It was really good. It took kind of a sabbatical. I, I didn't get paid for it. I, I uh, had, had to pay for this myself for three months without pay, but I took that time off and, and came back refreshed and was able to to really in 1980, I think 1980, really able for the for the next um, you know, 12, 13 years to really, really get things on track again. What is one of the most important things that you think law enforcement should know about the general public and then vice versa. What's something that the public should know about law enforcement? I think police today have to be serious and really think about the idea that everybody hates them because I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the, that that's the case in the black community either. And if you're working in an all black community, they, they don't hate you. You, know, you might be white, they don't hate you. But if, but if you are a person who helps and is fair and decent, and you know you're going to be you're going to be accepted, you're highly accepted. Maybe you might even end up being loved with 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 the community. Said so you've got to you've got to press on and keep demanding because you're right about the importance of having highly educated and trained police officers. You you deserve that. You deserve that. Taxpayers deserve to have the very best in policing. And uh, as difficult as it is, you know, I think there's got to be constant pressure at the political level within every community that, you know, we want good cops. We want to be policed by by decent people who are well-trained and controlled in their use of force. That That's what we want. Can, can you guarantee us that, that they're not going to be shooting us, for heaven's sakes? So... You know, that can be done by certainly, you know, departments need to be more open and uh, and w- willing to to meet with community members, must be willing to to uh, admit when they make mistakes, uh, must be willing to apologize when those mistakes are made without worrying about, well, someone's going to sue you. Well, you know, heck with that, you know, an apology needs to be made. You know, we can do better, you know, help us do better. So it, it you know the, the the danger is is that a community turns into sort of a, a them and us. Uh, it's um, it's uh, those people who are this way and our people. We we're, we're not going to give police a chance, and the police are going to say, you know, there are a bunch of criminals out there, and uh, we're not going to we're not going to back away from them either. So when you can't when when you can't negotiate, when you can't become a peacekeeper when you when you can't become a negotiator you you end up having to use more force and uh, you know back in uh, you know the 1850s those uh, famous uh, principle nine principles of policing of Robert Peel one of which was simply said is um 
the more the more force you have to use in doing your job, the less public support you'll have. And, and, and I think you know that that ought to be maybe the placard over the door of every of every uh, police training area that remember, you know, the more force you have to use to get this job done, you know, the less less uh, support you're going to have. You know, it just it, it's just so commonsensical. I mean, of course, of course, you know. So don't be so quick to use force because when we do, we're going to lose something. So that means when somebody's having a mental episode and hold up in an apartment, you know, maybe we're going to wait 12, 15 hours before we go in and maybe they're going to fall asleep and we go in there and, and take that gun away. Uh, we don't have to get the SWAT team out, knock the door down. Uh, everything doesn't have to be be done immediately. What are you most proud of in your law enforcement career? Well, I think uh, thanks to some good department uh, officers, that some good officers I inherited and some that, that I heard and promoted, that uh, we we changed a police department for the better. Uh, we became, uh, I, I think at that time, a lot of people in the country in the 90s thought that Madison was one of the best police departments in the country. And uh, so we had an image and uh, had a lot of people coming in and seeing how we were doing things. We, we took part of our mission to show others what we were doing and be willing to bring people in for a couple of days and show what we were doing. And we used um, a lot of the quality improvement methods of uh, W. Edwards Deming, uh, continuous improvement and improving their systems. I think we had a very good uh, image, a lot of support from the community. When, when I left, we had 25% of the department was female in uniform. And uh, my, my assistant, uh, Noble Ray, who became chief uh, about 10 years after that, uh, brought up to 35%. And I know that there's a big move within the country, you know, 30 by 30. Have you heard that one? Kind of police are keeping it to themselves. But um, a lot of female officers are looking at 30% in the ranks by 2030. And uh, and I say, well, I think it ought to be 70. I I, I think that the future of policing is, um, is less testosterone. My, my experience with women as as cops has been very very positive and i think they bring uh probably the, the 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 best way you can change your department to make it better is start bringing women on but you can't just bring one or two at a time you've got to bring big groups you can't you can't hire hire a woman one at a time i think you're going someplace so the advantage that we had is that for 20 years the rule was and this is how long it takes to diversify a police department. There's 20, 20 years, 20 years in which which the, the the directive given to hiring and training was, I, I would not permit a class to start unless half of the people were women or from a minority group. Half the group had. And even then, even then, it took 20 years to go from relatively 0% minority officers to 10% and for women to go from 0% to 25. So, so that's why a lot of change doesn't happen because you, you got to be around to implement the change and change uh, takes time. And uh, you can't do it doing something for two years, four years, 
six years, probably eight years or more. Eight years or more, you'd have to go in and say, look, at, we're, we're, we're going to make this a better place for everybody. And I think, you know, the kind of changes that we implemented in the department were, were good for the police officers, too. I mean, they they had a voice. They they were valued more. They were more supported in the community, as well as the community, you know, experiencing you know, good, decent, honest policing. You know, everybody benefits from that. It's not just, well, we're going to change the department for the community. No, 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 Joe and Jane officer, this is going to be a better department for you, too. For you, too. Thank you so yes. much, David. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Honestly, this is this is great. Well, thank you guys for doing this. We'd like to thank David for being on the show today, for sharing his invaluable insights and experiences on the complexities of policing and the path to reform. Make sure to check out David's website and blog. Also, check out his book, Arrested Development. You can find that on Amazon or at your local bookstore. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Bound by the Cloak. Check us out on social media. We're on X, we're on Instagram, we're on TikTok. Be sure to like, follow, subscribe on social media or on any of the podcast apps that you use to access podcasts. If you like what you hear, let others know. Spread the word about Bound by the Cloak on social media, to your friends, family, hell, tell everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until next time.